Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Alark Purcell. And I'm Timothy Plain. Each week we discuss the filmmaking topics and give we discuss <laughs> we discuss filmmaking topics and give topics and give you our point of view on them. Not as experts, but as two filmmakers trying to figure it out for ourselves. And I don't want to redo that again because I think it's nice to have some human <laughs> touches to things. You're human, yeah. What can you do? Yeah, topics threw me off. Um, <laughs> I was like, wait, topics? Oh yeah, we changed our format a little bit. Okay, cool. I feel like you stumble every week on that intro. Well, you don't do it every week. Every other week when you do it, I feel like you stumble on it. Maybe. I don't know. I thought I was getting it pretty good. It seemed like perfect until Topics. Like I was like, this is the best one I've ever done. And then Topics came up and I was like, oh, That's shit. why you got into your own head. I'm like, man, I sound like a radio announcer and everything. Maybe that's bad. I don't know. Lots of thoughts and emotions. Oh, man. Uh, so what's going on with you, man? We haven't really talked a lot lately. What, what have you been up to? We haven't. You seem like you're busy. Yeah, my head is like, you know, it was about to explode. Now that I'm actually working on the movie and um, I've met all the crew and I've done two days, I, I feel less stressed, you know? But uh, Which movie is this? This is the... Um, the movie I'm script supervising, I don't think they have like a big social media presence or maybe any social media presence. So I don't really know how much they want me to talk about anything. Probably nothing, maybe. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'll just say that it's been a really fun first two days and the crew is awesome. And uh, I know a good portion of the crew from previous shoots and stuff. So that's always nice. And then all the new people are really wonderful, too. And they weren't super stressful uh the first two days so that was kind of nice but i've got a good idea of how this shoot's gonna go and it's like gonna be pretty much down to the wire every single day like we're not leaving early any days <laughs> like we did on the last movie it's like that's not happening <laughs> what, what's the schedule like how many hours a day are you shooting and how many days a week we shoot um 12 hour days uh five day weeks and and it's all in the um, you know santa clara mountain view area so it's like almost every day is an hour drive home or more. So you have 12 hours on set and then an hour each way to get to and from set. Yeah. So yesterday was a 15 hour day from, you know, portal to portal for me. So we're catching you fresh right now on, on this job. Yeah. Two days into it. Yeah. We'll talk to you in a few weeks and see how you're, you're doing. Yeah. I wish there's like already <laughs> stories that I wish I could tell, but I don't, I mean, I, I, I feel like it's my duty to like talk to the, the director or the production at first and just see like you know if they're okay with it and no one knows i have a podcast yet um so, so. <laughs> but you're not wearing your making movies as hard t-shirt well we don't even have making movies as hard t-shirts that's a mistake we i know those made we should have those at least one like two one for me to wear <laughs> one for you to wear <laughs> right <laughs> that's that's enough that's it yeah that's a promotion yeah but uh, besides the movie, I'm doing a lot of other things are going on too. I'm like working on producing that Korean movie. Um, we did yeah. a lot Where of work. Where are you guys work. at with that? Yeah. Uh, so we did our first casting on Saturday, uh, which went oh, really awesome. well. Yeah, yeah. We had like one full day. Um, and, and how is it trying to find somebody who can speak Korean? Oh, uh, it's incredibly difficult. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> what do you, who, who you, what? resources are you tapping into to find these people well we used uh sf casting and this service called breakdown express um okay and then they also did uh like they've, they've been going through the korean american community and uh trying to find people that way and that they found 
they they put like two ads in two different newspapers, I think, or maybe maybe just one. I'm not exactly sure, but they, we got two people from that. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, and, and one um, had no like no acting experience, um, so he wasn't really a good option. And then the other one was actually pretty good, so that that was that was nice. Well, let me before I want to talk about casting, but I before we do that, let me just ask you this: Did you guys get the money to make the movie yet? No. <laughs> okay. so. so you guys are casting just in anticipation. You're just still staying on a schedule, but you don't have Yeah, money. pretty much. Okay. I mean, we have some money. We have like probably around $12,000, $15,000, um, which isn't a lot, but it actually, in the way that I'm going to be going about it, it, it sort of helps because then I can like at least say things like we have a portion of our budget secured. Right. And, and, and then another thing is like we actually have – like that's enough money to probably secure at least one actor, you know, uh, or maybe two, depending on who they are. So I can actually call agents and be like, and give offers at this point wh- using that money. And then okay. if we get those actors, then we can, uh, we can probably get a lot more money. Cause basically the, the team actually has connections to a, a, a few people who actually have, um, who would invest if certain people were involved, you know. So we're really hoping that's going to work out well for us. Fake it till you make it. Yeah, I mean, well, I was actually I was reading an article about this, and I, apparently that's how you're supposed to do it. Or, I mean, because most people don't have their budget before they cast. I mean, sometimes they do, but uh, usually you have to like kind of there's like a little gray area where you're like kind of. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to get your cast in so you can get the money, you know, and vice versa, (laughs) you know. I know. It's that catch-22. It's like you can't get actors without money, but you can't get money without actors. Yeah, but apparently there's like a couple – I don't know. I think it's more of a – of a real thing that people do, you know, they just like, you know, but I mean, it's probably people not like me, probably people who have connections and relationships with agents and actors already who can actually approach them and be like, hey – this is the script. Would you do this if we had, if for, you know, for this X amount of dollars? And then they would be like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. I was reading a, a book last night about the movie business and it was, it was talking about how it used to be easier to get actors attached to a project before you had funding. But I guess the project that ruined it was Boxing Helena. Oh, you yeah. Remember that movie? No. <laughs> There's this movie. It was about like a guy who I think like, kept his wife in a box and they think they had like Kim Basinger like loosely attached to it and then when they raised the money based off of that and she said oh no no I never agreed to do it then um, there's all these lawsuits and stuff around it so it made everybody much more careful so I guess that changed the whole industry and now it's it's impossible to get next to it sounds like maybe there's still some chance but it's, it's really hard to get a name actor attached to your project without having funding first because of this movie. Right. Wow. I don't know the whole story, but you guys look it up if you're interested. Boxing Helena was the movie that, that kind of set the precedent for what's going on right now. Interesting. Yeah, we should put that in the show notes. And I want to look that up because that sounds like a fascinating thing. All right. Well, let's shift gears, man. What what have you been doing since we haven't talked really in two weeks? Because <laughs> we've oh, been so You're going to be disappointed because I haven't, I haven't been doing anything. What? I've just been having my own crisis. What? Of just crisis. Crisis. Crisis of life. You should just be called Timothy Crisis Plane. That should be your nickname. <laughs> I, I turned to my wife on Saturday and I was like, can I ask you a serious question? She's like, yeah, sure. What's the meaning of life? 
She's like, what? <laughs> she's like, like, don't put your shit on me, man. <laughs> she's like, yeah, I mean, what does it all mean? Like, where, why are we doing all this? <laughs> That's me, though. That's me in a nutshell. Oh, my God. But yeah, I just, I don't know. I mean, things are tough right now, to be honest. Really? I'm a little lost, a little confused. I don't uh. really know. I can't even really talk about it because I don't even know where this feeling's coming from, why I feel it. But I just feel like a little confused about what I'm doing. Okay, well, let me ask you a couple questions. Um, okay. So, all right. Think about if you could be doing anything right now, what you, would you be doing? Like anything in the whole world. Um, do you ever have that feeling where you just want to not exist? Mm. Like it's not like you don't, it's not like you want to be dead. You just don't, you just want to like kind of disappear. Yeah, I, I do, but it's not in relation with what you're talking about. It's because I have too many <laughs> things to do and I can't handle it. So I like lay on my bed oh, and I'm just like, right. I know petrified. it's like, <laughs> I'm like in the opposite scenario where I have nothing to do and that's making me just feel like, ah, oh, I just want to like disappear. Huh? So you just like, <laughs> so Timothy's number one oh, thing here, to be Here's doing. the feeling. This okay. is the feeling. Okay. I feel like I'm standing at the bottom of a huge mountain and I'm looking up at it and just being like, is it worth climbing that thing? I don't know, man. That's a big mountain to climb well i i guess the question is like what like like what's what, that top of the mountain what's at look the like? top of the mountain right and then and then that's the other part i don't know it's at the top of the mountain uh, that's why i don't know if it's worth going after well, what do you want at the top I of the mountain i don't know anymore <laughs> what do you like what makes you the happiest like what what do you like doing the most like where are you having the most fun in your life Let's, nothing right now nothing nothing is the most fun <laughs> god damn it You're not working with me here man this is terrible oh i know that's why i told you it's, it's hard for me to even talk about because i don't even really know what's going on with me yeah i think about this not a lot but i mean i've been thinking about it lately just because i've been having similar feelings of um you know like the struggle is getting a little hard for me you know mm -hmm. um just because i have so many things to do and I feel like my own personal projects are getting neglected for um, these other things that I'm doing. And I'm just right. like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, why isn't my movie released yet? Why isn't Brother <laughs> out? And then, like, right. I got three, maybe four rejections in the last two weeks uh, from film festivals. So <laughs> it's oh, just like, like, okay, well, now you don't have any excuse because, you know, you're pretty much only waiting to hear back from two. Uh, and you should just, now you have to take control and you have to take life by the balls and it's time to, to plan my premiere in New York. Yeah. So, so yeah, I guess it's just, it, nothing feels like it's adding up to anything worthwhile. It's like, okay. What does I that just, even mean, man? That's exactly. What's the meaning of life, dude? What's the meaning of life? Cause it's like, you know, you get, let's say you get a million views on your video or you release a feature and it makes it into Sundance and you get another films like yeah, those are all nice goals, but what are they adding up to? What does it all mean? What well, is it, what am I really going after? Like, yeah, the the you know, like so those things for me, it's not a really about. It's not about the thing. It's not about like oh, I got a million views. It's it's not about oh, I got into Sundance. It's more like, like I got those things so I can get the other thing, like so I can get the movies made right. Because like with right. a million views, now you should be able to go out and like you know, convince somebody to give you money to make your movie or, you know, if you get into Sundance and obviously you're going to be able to use that and leverage that to like get your next film made. So it's, it's not necessarily like, Oh, these accomplishments are goals. That I want to have just be like, 
to put them as you know trophies on my wall. It's more like these are tools that I can use to make movies and tell stories. You know, for you, it's like you have this these commercials. Like the other one released, right? Like the yeah, the other one's doing really well. Wow. So like you have these two commercials that both have like millions of hits. Um, I mean, why aren't you leveraging that to direct more commercials? Or are you just not interested in that? No, I just don't even know what I'm doing. Like, what <laughs> am I going after? <laughs> I just... Well, you were so on point, man. I mean, my God, man. I mean, I'm really impressed with you. Like, in the last, like, year, like, you, you know, got that one commercial, that Cisco thing. You made that really awesome. And then, yeah, you found this this Sweetos thing, and you just, like, willed it into to existence for yourself. And it's like, you should be on the top of the world right now, like... Fucking like going out to other production companies, be like, check out my commercials that both have fucking <laughs> millions of hits each, motherfucker. Like, give me this other commercial concept that I found. Like, you should just be fucking killing it, bro. Like, but I mean, did you just not want to do that? Like, do you not want to make commercials right now? Like, what is, what's your heart tell you? You tell me nothing, which is like, I mean, I think maybe I just need a vacation. I don't know. I just feel like. Nothing is exciting to me right now. Like not e- even eating food is not exciting. Maybe I have like some like mental problem. Maybe <laughs> I do have maybe I do have depression. I don't know. Wow. Maybe I have like maybe I need to take drugs. It's really it's, But uh, doesn't this seem to happen to me? Maybe we can find a pattern in in this, but doesn't it seem to happen to me after I achieve my goals? that I get a little lost afterwards. Yeah. Because I'm so focused. I'm just like, yes, I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that. And then I get it and then I'm just like now what? Yeah, <laughs> where, I, I where don't know. I feel like you go in and out of crisis a lot. But, um, I don't <laughs> right. think you ever really. I uh, I, you never told me that you didn't like food or you didn't weren't excited to eat Because <laughs> I don't know. It, I guess it's really hard for me to understand because I get excited about like everything. Like I'm excited to drink my iced coffee right now. Like this, uh, this makes me really happy. So I don't know. It's just like uh, it's it's weird. But I mean. I feel like there's got to be a core thing that you would just love to, if you could just be doing this only just this one thing and that's all you did and that's how you lived your life. Uh, I'm sure that's would be fantastic for you. But like, I don't know, like you can't articulate what that is. Not at the moment. Right now, I feel like I just need a break. I need a break from life. Yeah. I mean, what did you work my ass off to get here? And now I'm like, oh. What else? now? What am I doing now? What? Where do I go from here? Well, you didn't take a vacation this year, did you? I haven't taken a vacation yet. It's yeah. been it's been like a year since I've taken a vacation. Because you went to Actually, like Japan or something like last year. Right? I remember because you were gone or something. Yeah, the New Year of last year, I was in Japan, and then I was in Peru in May, and then we started this podcast, and I haven't taken a break since we started the podcast. Oh, for shame. <laughs> <laughs> I've been dedicated to this podcast. Well, I mean, maybe that, maybe you should do that. Maybe you should just go, like, even just do something simple, like just take a weekend, like go to San Diego and sit on the beach, or you know, uh, I don't know, somewhere nicer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm the kind of person that needs to take breaks, and because I haven't taken one, I started feeling it. Even November, December, I started feeling this. Actually. Mm. In December, I was supposed to take vacation. I had it all set up. And then I got the Sweetos job and I was like, well, I'm coming back. Wow. Yeah. So I just haven't really been able to get away since May of last year. Yeah. So maybe that's it. Maybe. maybe as simple as that. I don't know. Could be. I have, I've, felt, I've had similar feelings, I suppose. But I, but I usually come out with an answer. Like I, I think about like, what am I doing this for? Like, why is this? Why am I working so hard? Why am I struggling? But then it's like, this is why. 
and this is what I want from it. So, you know, but I mean, it is ongoing, like question to ask yourself. It's an ongoing thing. I mean, like right now, I guess part of what I'm feeling is I'm already doing what I want to do, right? Like what more could I possibly want? It's like full-time directing sounds nice, but at the same time, it's not like, it doesn't seem like a necessity. And maybe that's part of the problem is that it, because it's not a necessity and I'm just kind of like, well, I'm making it happen. I'm doing, I'm doing what I wanted to do this whole time. Yeah. It's not like, you know, it's not driving me like it should be. Well, you haven't, um, you've never directed a feature and you've never worked on a feature. Is that, is that right? Uh, right. Yeah. You probably, well, how long did you shoot for your short? Like seven days or something? Uh, Spirit Machine was a total of 10 days, but one of them was by itself yeah the first scene well that's actually pretty close <laughs> yeah i mean it was pretty it felt i mean it definitely wasn't as big as a feature but it, i definitely got a taste of it and yeah. it's like this is awesome this is the best oh well there you go well then that that yeah. that, that seems to answer the question so you i mean yeah. maybe that's part of it is that you haven't you haven't had that experience basically since Spirit Machine because all the other projects you've done right. since then have been like really tiny, you right. know, one day shoots or no shoots at all. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely feel invigorated being back on a feature set again. You know, cool. it's uh, just fun to be around a lot of creative people, and I mean, it's such a crazy amount of effort to make a movie. Like, it's <laughs> right. it's it's even it's like hard to even put into words how much effort it is because like you can feel the effort you're putting into it, but then like you look around you and you realize that everybody around you, like all 30, 40 people around you, are also putting the same or more effort into it, and in, in completely different ways, obviously. And you're just like, God, this is like an extreme amount of effort to create a piece of art, you know? Yeah. And it just makes me feel like the art that you're creating, it's so important that that matters. If you're the one writing, directing it, producing it, like that needs to really matter in order for the whole thing to happen. Because if, it, if you're just like ho-hummed about it, it's like you're basically wasting 40 people's energy and time <laughs> you know oh yeah totally well that's part of it for me right now too is just kind of trying to figure out like what do i want to say that's worth it yeah that's, that the world needs to hear like i think i'm and i'll say this now and maybe i'll change my mind in a month or two but right now i'm just kind of like i think i've done it you've said done- what you want to say no, I think I've done the I think I've done the filmmaking part of it. I've made movies, you know, I've directed commercials, but now it's like, but what does it mean? Like what is it all adding up to and what what can I contribute to it? It's like it's it can't be about me forever. You know what I'm saying? Like mm. it can't be about what I'm getting out of it, but at a certain point it has to be about what I'm contributing to the the greater good. One thing that I really love about this podcast is I know that in some small way we're contributing to people's lives and their own journeys. And I want to do that more, but I don't think my, I don't think my films are doing that. And I don't think the stuff that, you know, some part of me is feeling like I've just been kind of pursuing the, I don't know exactly what you would call it, but just pursuing the goal of making movies rather than pursuing of like, I, I have a voice and I have something to say. And I'm trying to figure out what is it that I have to say that I, that only I can say. And it's like you, I, I watched um, Dope recently. Oh yeah, and I was like, man, that movie's so good. And like that movie uh. has such like that that guy, 
deserves to say something, you know, have something to say. Like uh. <laughs> a lot of the movies that I want to, you don't agree, but that's okay. A lot of the movies that I want to make, I feel like have already kind of been done, you know, rehashing yeah. the same thing, you know? So it's like, what, what do I have to, what, what does my life experience add up to? Maybe, yeah. maybe nothing. Maybe I just haven't found it yet. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'll agree that Dope had something interesting to say for sure, but uh, I'm just, uh, I wasn't really happy with the execution <laughs> of that movie. And, and the, there's a lot of things that really bugged me about that thing. Like for, for once, I sat down and watched it with Beth, um, I think maybe 10, 15 minutes in, she was like, I can't handle this anymore. And she made, made us turn it off. And then I watched it by myself the next day, the rest of it. Yeah. And um, I mean, it wasn't totally, wholly bad, but I mean, everyone's like, you know, screaming at the top of the mountain how great this movie is and how unique and independent of a voice it is and I mean I think I love the cast like I love like the concept and everything but I just thought the writing and the just a lot of the choices and a lot of the things that happened just seemed completely I don't know oh, just, I liked it because it reminded me of a John Hughes movie yeah I guess so yeah. yeah I don't know but I let's get... talk about other really bad movies so <laughs> okay the, the new Ghostbusters. Oh, man. Did you finally watch the trailer? I watched it this morning. Oh, yeah. man. So what was your initial reaction? Uh, it wasn't that bad. Oh, really? What? Yeah. What, what, is, what do people think is so bad about it? Well... What do you think is bad about it? It's basically taking one of the most interesting, unique, and, like, human sort of, <laughs> like, real-feeling, like, movies, like, where those, those that group of, of guys, it just feels like this, like, unique, special moment in time where they made this movie, and, like, everyone's just sort of hitting off each other, and it just it's just, like, this unique, special thing, and then um, they just took that, and then they just made it Hollywood. They're just like, <laughs> here's a great thing, and let's just Hollywoodify it, and uh, you know, just what take it down mean, to the it? like take it down to the lowest common denominator. Um, you know, uh, put in things that we've seen in all these other kinds of movies before, and just apply it to Ghostbusters. Um, and everyone's going to love that because people like what they're used to and people like Ghostbusters. So <laughs> of course they're going to like the same old jokes and the same old kind of um, setups and situations with Ghostbusters. Of course uh, they're going to like a, a ghost, uh, you know, ridiculously puking um, on uh, the leads. Of course that's going to, that's going to do well. Um, they did it in the last one. So let's do it, but like six times longer in this new one and we've done that before in other movies that we've made but let's just do it again in this one too because it was probably a good idea well, what the so fuck you, your your cynicism is that the, the Hollywood system is just putting together a formula and turning it out and I don't agree with you I think that the people who made this movie just thought these were good ideas and they're like, this is what we want to make, and this is what we want to do. We want to have a there's... possession. We want to have a possession scene that references that references the Exorcist in 2016 in a Ghostbusters remake. That's what we want to do with our lives, really. That seems like a good idea to you. you don't so, think oh my god! I mean, Sigourney Weaver floating in her bed was any was not influenced by the Exorcist. Yeah, but it was done with like so much more class and style and feeling like everything I've seen in that trailer just feels like, like it's been done in hundreds of other comedies in the last 10 to 15 years. You know, it just feels like a modern day comedy 
with Ghostbusters in it. And it's like, I don't know. The only interesting thing about that trailer was um, Kate McKinnon or whatever, the woman from SNL. She was the only one who seemed to bring anything interesting to the table. Everybody else just seemed like just playing the same old, like, you know, cutouts that, you know, that they play in other things that they do. And she was the only one who seemed to bring anything interesting and different to it. And uh, it's just like, where's the heart, man? Where's the soul, dude? Like, these are all very talented people. You can give them heart and soul, but it's just like... Ah, oh, I just feel. Oh, Did you like Bridesmaids? No, <laughs> I oh, didn't okay. like Bridesmaids. I've tried to watch a couple of this guy's movies, and I've always turned them off like about a half hour through, um, just because I feel like they're so they're they're do they do the same thing that I'm complaining about in this trailer. They just kind of like it's like lowest common denominator Hollywoodified, you know, like easy to digest sort of stuff for the audiences. I just feel like, I don't know. It just doesn't feel like there's any character. There's no soul. There's no heart. There's no voice. That's, you know, like you're talking about like this whole thing where you're like, I need to have like, what's the point? Like I, I need, I don't feel like I have anything to say. I feel like this guy to me, if he's trying to say something, he's, he's, I'm not getting it. Like I'm, well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I'm not going to like totally disagree with everything you're saying, but my perspective is, if you look at like where Ivan Reitman was coming from when he made Ghostbusters, like he he's not the adventure, paranormal, big Hollywood guy. Like he made very kind of small comedies, like kind of weird, quirky comedies leading up to that. And he'd worked with these guys before before they made Ghostbusters. So that's kind of how the cast got right got created. Paul Feig seems to me like he's the exact same type of director. Like maybe you don't like his comedy, but I mean, in terms of like coming from smaller stories being told, like I thought Bridesmaid was Bridesmaids was really good. And I thought it was really human. And I, I see a lot of overlap between Ivan Reitman and Paul Feig. Yeah. But is he did that the, movie spy was his last, I didn't movie. see that one. And that was like a big budget over the top, like action comedy thing. And, where they did like I just felt like they ah, never mind I'm not gonna go off on that one either Ghostbusters is like is one of those movies that probably you could never remake and people would be happy because it's just it holds a special place in time it was so unexpected for for its day that just by nature of doing another Ghostbusters you can't help but feel like it's been done before because Ghostbusters has been done before so it's like, but if you think about like that time, 1984, when that movie came out, yeah, there were some other like Spielberg and Lucas movies, but like having comedy in there, like these SNL people in this context was completely new and fresh and the way that they treated it was pretty awesome. So I think that it was, it's really hard to capture that energy. And I think it's the Holy grail that everyone's been trying to go after since Ghostbusters came out that no one's ever been able to reproduce. Yeah, it's right? true. There's no other movie like Ghostbusters. Yeah. They, they've tried a lot. There's that, um, was it evolution or whatever? The one with yeah, David Duchovny, exactly. that one got pretty close. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a really hard thing to do well, you know, but, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I, I still feel like remakes, like I think a go ghost a good ghost Ghostbusters remake could exist. Uh, it's just not going to exist in the way that they are doing. They did this remake. It's, it's well. How good. would you do it? Do you have any ideas about what you would do to make it make it good? 
No, not really. But I mean, basically, what I was going to say is like you, you look at, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> a Coogler, Ryan Coogler, who did Creed. And he basically did that remake or whatever you want to call it, reboot. Like he basically did that the way that you have to do it for it to be good. He, he, he made it extremely personal to him. It was a personal story. It was a story that he needed to tell. And he went from that approach and he found like the core story character, the soul of it is like where he started with. And then he created a beautiful, wonderful movie that feels like it's got its own thing to say. And that's its own thing, even though it's within this Rocky universe, it just feels like wholly unique, refreshing and interesting. So it basically, it's going to take a filmmaker to like, have a personal story to tell that like can live within the Ghostbusters universe and then just do it the same way that Coogler did, like kind of like a more independent filmmaking approach <laughs> and not the but Hollywood the, system corporation the, bullshit approach. The flaw in your logic though, is that the original Rocky was pretty much an independent style film. And so when Coogler did that again, it matched, but Ghostbusters originally was a Hollywood movie so you have to do it as a Hollywood movie yeah but it was more like it was back in the day where like there was less cooks in the kitchen in Hollywood movies like they weren't really answering to people for Ghostbusters they were just doing what they wanted to do you know like I think if they were answering to like big studio heads or whatever that thing would have gotten tarnished you know well I think they did it for a little amount of money some I forget exactly what the story goes but when Reitman pitched it I think the whoever the studio was at the time is like we won't give you that much money, but we'll give you this much money. And he had no idea. He's just like, okay, sure. And they just made it for whatever they got. Right. And and I mean, so I think it's probably the reason, a small gamble. The reason why that works is because, well, A, you have Ivan Reitman and then Bill Murray was humongous at the time. And Dan Aykroyd, like they was pretty big coming off of, was Trading Places already out at that time? I think it might've been. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, he'd had movies and like SNL obviously. So like, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a pretty easy gamble to make and be like, hey, like, here's a little bit of money. Go do what you want to do. We'll see if it works. But Hollywood doesn't do that anymore. They don't just give somebody a little bit of money and say, see if it works. I mean, sometimes, I guess, but like, I think it's more, really rare, you know? <laughs> yeah, you have such a negative view of Hollywood. And well, how can I not, man? When they But like, at the same like, time, you just told everybody a few weeks ago, go see Deadpool. Deadpool was one of the ones where they left them alone. They like they they basically let them do There's almost no way anything. they left them alone. There's well, no way they left I mean, them alone. I I watched some interviews with uh, the the director Tim Miller and everything, and basically, I mean, I think they had to definitely report and do do some checking in with the studio. But he was from what he said, it was pretty minimal, and they kind of like gave them pretty much free reign to just just take it in whatever direction they wanted, you know. And I think that's. That's the key to a good executive is like, trust your creatives, man. You know, like you hire these people for a reason, let them do their thing and then, you know, give a couple notes. But it's like, you don't have to go in there and like fucking throw your dick on the table. I feel like, you know, men and women both do that. Like, just like they got to like throw it down, you know, and say like, this is my opinion. This is what I think. And I think that is like, just let them do their thing. They're creative artists. They need the time and the space to breathe life into a project man um so i don't know i mean i think yeah obviously there's gonna be like really like some hits but i think like the ones where you can tell that there was a lot of like table meetings between like 12 different producers and 12 different executives or whatever like spider the amazing spider-man 2 for instance like you could tell that was just 
completely ripped apart by the studio and put back together and we just had a big piece of shit (laughs) well i feel like i'm not qualified to talk about any of this because i don't really know how hollywood works i think it's it's easy to stand on the outside and assume what's going on in those rooms but i really don't have any idea so i can't i my my opinion is because i feel like it's the same thing as advertising that there's people inside the system that really want to do good work everyone wants to make a good movie and there's just powers beyond you sometimes that get in the way of that happening i don't know exactly what it is like in hollywood but for us it it's clients and and kind of the things that they need to to sell their product so yeah anyway well, so let's move on to well, hey William i want to say one more thing okay. <laughs> i don't one really last know thing. i don't really know what it's like in the hollywood system either it's not like i'm sitting in these meetings i just read you know what people write you know i read the gossip about it and and sort of that's how I come up with uh, with my opinion. But I mean, I feel like, I don't know, I still think it's valid. Anyways, let's move on. <laughs> um, so speaking of people who have total control of their movies, in the 1970s, oh, yeah. William Friedkin did uh, The French Connection and The Exorcist. And there's just a, a WTF podcast where Mark Marin interviewed him. And I thought it was an amazing interview. And there's some really cool things in there I wanted to out one thing which is his directing technique because it is kind of a technique I've I've heard of with other directors but it's something I don't know if I would ever have the guts to do yeah it's pretty interesting I, I didn't listen to the whole thing but I listened to a lot of that podcast and there was a lot of really great things in there the first thing to point out is that he started out his career as a documentary filmmaker which I think says a lot about his style which is like he he's interested in spontaneity and so he talks about working with Gene Hackman in The French Connection and then also Linda Blair in The Exorcist and how he got those performances. And for him, he says that he becomes a sort of psychologist and he finds out what moves the actor. So before they ever get on set, he just wants to know as much about those people and like what makes them tick, what moves them. And then he uses that against them to get the performance they want or with them in the case of (laughs) Linda Blair. So like with Hackman, he found out that he hated his father so much. So what Friedman did was to tap into Hackman's anger. He became his father on set. He was like the authority figure. And so he treated him really harshly and was really cruel to him. So that way throughout the entire movie, Hackman always seemed like there was like anger brewing underneath it, it, it sounded really interesting yeah but that manipulation is like is is something that i don't think i would ever want to do i've seen i've actually seen a director in commercials do that to an actor like manipulate him to get a performance and it kind of feels wrong to me yeah we're all manipulating in, in some way you know um yeah we are oh totally but but I mean, I feel like it just depends. Like I've never really done that either. And I've, I've heard of like, I read a Oliver Stone biography where they're talking about him doing that to, um, I think it was Michael Douglas. He like, just like, didn't say anything at the end of the take. And then Michael Douglas comes up and was like, whoa, was that, was it okay? Was that good? And he just like, didn't say anything. I was like, no, that was bad <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> and then like that got him really riled up to do, to deliver the performance that was finally in the movie in, in Wall Street. What is it? Greed is money or greed is yeah, uh, greed is good. Greed is good. The greed is good speech. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was really interesting to hear that and like the way that he approached that and like like how he knew 
what would get him to give the right performance in that moment, you know? Yeah, there's another good example, and you can actually watch this. There's a behind the scenes of The Shining, and you can watch Kubrick dealing with Shelley Duvall, and he's really mean to her, and I think he did it on purpose. And if you watch that and kind of see how he's manipulating the situation to get her just to be kind of freaked out and on edge the whole time, I think that was his technique to get it out of her. And I think she even says something to that effect, like, oh, you know, I I know what he's doing. You know, it's fine. I'm okay. (laughs) Yeah. And he was like doing that to like become the abusive husband sort of, you know. Yeah. He was like yelling at her and like telling her like she was screwing everything up and that she was ruining like all the crew was working so hard and she wasn't hitting her mark and wasn't coming in at the right time. And she was like kind of freaking out. And I think there was at that part of the movie where um, she's being chased throughout the hotel. Yeah. I don't know. The only thing I probably would do is like maybe show my annoyance more than I, cause I usually don't show my, if right. I'm annoyed, I don't ever show it. I just keep it inside. But I think the, the, the probably the most flagrant thing I could ever do is just like let, them see me being frustrated on purpose and and then and then like turn it off like like turn it off be like oh okay okay good good, good okay that's good um let's just try just do that on purpose and then see what they how they react because <laughs> i could see myself doing that too that's very passive aggressive though <laughs> it is a little passive yeah i hate passive aggressive but yeah <laughs> and it, then he talked a little bit about linda blair too i think with him with her she, he was probably a little bit more supportive in how he dealt with her, but he found out that the thing that disturbed her the most and that scared her was the death of her grandfather. So what he would do is while they were shooting kind of off to the side of the camera, he would be constantly whispering things to her to remind her of things that she told him to just kind of get in her head. And I don't know exactly like what parts of that that were. And but I mean, her performance is amazing as a 12 year old girl in that movie. That seems kind of one of the only ways you could probably get that performance is by getting in her head and and just kind of like keep reminding her about things that mm. are going to help her get to that place emotionally. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, I think I have this theory that like kid actors in the 80s uh, were just better than kid actors <laughs> now. Uh, like there's just so many movies from the 80s, early 90s where these kids are just so fucking amazing. And then you watch kid now and you're just like, what the hell? Like that it's almost like they're trying to act too much these days sometimes, you know, but like yeah. in the old days they just they just let them be kids and sort of capture it and then like give them a little bit of direction and it was just like wonderful, you know? Like uh <laughs> specifically the kid in uh the Fatal Attraction was like fantastic. Yeah. Oh, my so favorite good. is uh Kramer versus Kramer. Oh, I haven't that even seen that. Oh, I got to oh, watch I love that. that movie. Oh man. The Kid in the Shining. The Kid in the Shining, obviously, that's a, that's an amazing one. Um, Red Rom. Red Rom. <laughs> uh, but anyways, it, your last question in here, are, are all directors being manipulative? Yeah. yeah I think so. We are, to yeah, some degree. To some degree. Whether or not, you know, it's like purposeful, like in the way that like Freakin or, you know, Stone are manipulative, It's it's probably more like just out of a you know a sense of just trying to to communicate what you want to the actor but i mean you're you're being manipulative no matter what you know yeah just to what degree yeah are you going to be an asshole for 20 days to get a performance out of one actor 
Can you? I don't know if I can. Actors do it too, though, you know? Like, actors, Ooh. I think, manipulate the directors sometimes <laughs> to get what they want also, you know? <laughs> and you see that happen. But uh, I think... I don't know. I think a lot of it, most of it's not, it's not like intentional malicious uh, manipulation. It's just part of what you're doing to, to, to tell the story the best you can. Anyways. Let's talk about another directing tool, which is playback. Yeah. How do you use playback? I, I use it to double check basically. So like, especially like if it's a, a big camera move, like a dolly or, or, a, you know, a jib move or something like those are the ones like I usually watch playback on just because there's so many little things happening in those that like, you know, you could miss it in, in real time and then mm-hmm. it'll be there in the edit and you're like, Oh my God, I can't, this is not usable. So it's like, it's really important to watch those. Cause like those tiny little, like, tiny little shakes or bumps or, you know, slightly off movements. Like they really do make a big difference. And like, if you have those in there, um, you know, the takes unusable. And especially if you're, you're creating a movie in a way where it's like, you're only covering this one action with one shot because you're trying to craft the story through, through camera shots in a very specific way. Uh, you could be completely screwed if that shot doesn't work, you know? So, I mean, I think that's sort of how I, I view playback just to check the really important takes, you know? Um, and I, when I, you direct, do you like standing by the monitor? Um, yeah, yeah, I do. And I so mean, when, like you're, the when you're by the me. monitor, how often are you asking for playback? Not, not often, I guess, just because I'm, I'm watching it as it's happening. So like, I just, you know, like, just making sure the frame looks looks good and that like everything's being being captured correctly because I think if you're not watching the monitor or you're not watching a monitor and like sometimes I'll sit I'll stand next to the camera and like look over the DP shoulder and do it that way you know but I mean it's really important to be looking at the monitor I think because you know like there's so much that you could miss in a small in a small screen so like you got to have somebody watching the big monitor to make sure that everything's working out well, you know? And like I've, everything I've done, there's no script supervisor or anything like that. So it's not like I have somebody like being those kinds of eyeballs for me. So it's sort of, you have to be that, that for (laughs) yourself. Yeah. You have to wear multiple hats. It's not, this is not a conversation about monitor versus no monitor. It's more about playback. And I'm trying to remember like playback. Have I, I don't use playback too often. I mean, I don't even, to be honest, if I don't have to be at the monitor, I like to not be at the monitor. I'd rather be next to the camera. And and are you yeah. are you watching the actors like just with yeah. your eyes, or are you? Watching- I just want to be like a hundred percent there with the actors. And I, it's if I feel like I'm I'm much more of like instinctual. Like if I feel it while that performance is happening there's no reason for me to go play it back, but there's probably, you're right. Like if it was a, some sort of camera move and focus might be an issue or um, it's just like the blocking of it's like really important. I might ask for playback so I can just make sure that's all working. Yeah. I remember there's, so since no one's seen it, I can't really refer to this too well, but there's like this really emotional scene in the spirit machine, kind of like the climax of the movie um, and it's a close up of this girl's face. And I didn't watch the monitor while we were shooting it. And I don't even know if I really even wanted to see it. 
because I watched her perform it and I was like, yep, we got it. Awesome. Let's move on. <laughs> and right. everyone's like, are you sure? You don't want to watch it? And I was like, ah, I mean, I feel like we got it. So then I ended up watching playback on it without sound just to make sure. And I was like, yeah, it looks great. Let's go. Let's move on. So I remember using playback in that particular instance. Right. But most of the time I I don't, especially with, you know, performance, if it's just performance, it seems to me like it's better just to trust your gut. Well, I don't know. I just feel like, especially if you're not watching the monitor while you, um, you know, while you're shoot, like shooting, it feels like you should use playback for those important moments because, I mean, you're seeing one thing as a person watching the performance, but the camera sees something completely different, you know? So that's kind of like why I'm, I'm so glued to the monitor just because I just know that what you see is different than what the camera sees. Yeah. So I just want to like know what the camera sees. Cause I want to know what the audience is going to see in the end, you know? Um, but maybe, maybe that's, I don't know. I, I do like the idea of being close to the actors <laughs> and being like there with them emotionally. Uh, so, I mean, I guess if the monitor can't be too far away, like it basically has to be in the same room, you know, mm-hmm. and I've almost, I've never had that before where I've been in a, in a place where I couldn't really talk directly to the actors, you know, like they're always usually like right there, like, you know, on the other side of a door or just like in the same room or whatever. But if I was like in another building watching, like I know sometimes you have to do that for like certain reasons, like they put video village, like way far away from the action. Um, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be way up yeah. there just because I think what happens is you get used to whatever you start doing. Yeah. That if you, if you get used to looking at a monitor, you're only going to be able to use a monitor. If you get used to not looking at a monitor, you'll be better at not using a monitor. So I think I've always had this like romantic idea of like not using the monitor was probably why I kind of forced myself not to like even <laughs> during casting or um, callbacks. I, I try not to use the monitor at all. And I, and I know that they, it's always there because you're right. It looks different on camera than it does in person, but I, I'm trying, I think what I've tried to do is train myself to not rely on that technology so, because there are times when it's impossible to have a monitor next to the camera. Right. And so in those instances, if I know what it feels like to see a performance in person that I know is going to work on camera, it's to my benefit. So I think I've just kind of like gone that way. I mean, this whole discussion came out because I was listening to uh, an interview with M. Night Shyamalan and he was saying he, when he started making his movies, he used playback on every take. Wow. And I was just thinking like, wow, that's, I never thought about using the tool like that, but that just seems like such a slow way to make a movie, um, which is definitely, you can do, he did it, but then he got into TV and they didn't have playback and he had to just move fast. And then he started realizing like, oh, like you can make movies without playback. And he actually kind of liked it. So I think it all comes down to like how you get used to using a certain technology and and training yourself to either rely on it or not rely on it. It's kind yeah. of up to each person individually. I can't imagine playing back every take. Or, oh my or gosh. That seems like such a waste of time. And I've, I've been on sets before where, um, you know, the director or somebody calls for playback and then the DP is like, we don't have to play back every shot. Like we just don't have time. We can't do that. And like, you know, that always kind of stuck with me, like realizing, yeah, you don't need to play back every shot. Like you just need, like you're only using it just to check 
important things or like check if you're if you're nervous you know so like i used to this think like oh i'm only gonna watch it if i'm unsure um but then like i started to notice like some of the dps i'd work with were like encouraging me to check playback on important shots like almost regardless especially if we only did one or two takes you know um but like now being a script supervisor and like knowing that I didn't have a script supervisor on my other projects, it's like, I'd probably want to check playback more because there's so many small little details that you can miss if you're not scrutinizing the frame. Um, cause like last night, like I was watching monitor, like doing my job as a script supervisor and there was like three or four different columns of glass in our shot in this dolly move. And so the first one that's closest to camera, everyone immediately saw the camera in, in the reflection. And we, we solved that problem. We were like getting really close, like about to shoot. And then I see it in two other columns and I had to go to the DP and be like, it's right there and right there. And then they like scrutinized <laughs> it and they, you saw it there and you saw the, the DP's head pass by in, in a frame, in a panel of glass right next to the actors. And uh, that could have been so easily missed if I hadn't been there to scrutinize the frame. So like after that experience and like knowing that we're going to talk about this today, I was like, shit, <laughs> if I don't have a script supervisor, I should be checking like, <laughs> like anything. Right, then it all falls on you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Any, anytime there's like a reflection or a possible reflection or something like some glass in, in the frame, like we, we should check playback because, you know, those reflections are so easy to miss, you know, and like that's like the most killer thing to like, you know, get back to an edit and just be like, oh, <laughs> there's a goddamn yeah. reflection, son of a bitch. Like you can see the camera right there. It is interesting how kind of like the way you, you have to shoot your films kind of just informs your style. Like if you don't have the people to support you to look out for those things, it falls on you and you're just going to get good at looking at a monitor and watching both performance and all the other small little details. That's just like how it's going to happen. And that's just how you're going to get used to it. And I'm sure like, I have no idea how M night started his career. I have no idea what M night Shyamalan's budgets were when he first started out. I know he did a movie or two before six cents, but he must've had enough money that he could justify playing back every single take. But had he not had that money, then he would have just figured out how to do it a different way. Six Sense was in his first movie. He directed some stuff. I think it was his second or third. Oh, really? Fuck, dude. Yeah. How did I not know that? What am I? I'm like a bad film geek. Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, I didn't realize that either. He was talking about it on this this interview. Well, I, I know that I have the DVD for Unbreakable because I love that movie. And on there, it was like one of his first short films that he made. Oh, uh, yeah. He was doing that for a while, releasing the, the early films that he made on each one of his DVDs. Yeah, like him as a kid, basically, yeah. making some like home movie <laughs> stuff. So he probably watched playback back in those days, and maybe that's how he's, he stuck with it. Oh, interesting. I don't know. That's just a thought. Yeah, sure. and then we were talking about, remember I was working with a, a director that he was shooting while he was directing, and I think he just got used to doing that. And so he probably is like for the rest of his life is just going to be the guy that has to operate the camera and direct at the same time. Yeah, like good old Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, you just get used to it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I like, ah, man, I'm so like into this whole like, you know, trusting the crew around you concept, you know. let Let the DP you know, be the DP and let, yeah, just let people do their, their jobs because I really feel like it's the culmination of everyone's efforts together that creates something beautiful. It's not one, you know, man or woman, you know, doing it themselves. Like right. it's just not, you don't believe in the auteur theory. I mean, to some extent, like you have to have vision obviously, but I mean, 
it's okay. It's not like you could just take like, let's say like Clint Eastwood on the Unforgiven or Steven Spielberg doing Jaws or E.T. and leave the directors in and then replace everybody else in the crew and get the same movie. There's just no way. Like it, it would be different, you know? <laughs> right. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people who, who believe in the auteur theory would disagree, would say, no, it's only the director. Like everyone else is a tool in his toolbox. Exactly. And I, I just don't, <laughs> I don't think that's true. Um, no matter what anyone else says, like if it's just like, it's just too much personality for, from each department that goes into it, like from wardrobe to, 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 um, art department to, you know, everything. It's just such a, it's such a group effort. And that's, it's, that's what's so beautiful to be on a set, like, you know, and just like see all the departments and meet all the people and chat with them in between takes and just like, just see their artistry all come together. And like, you know, and like, I'm, I'm not really, you know, my part's small in a way, you know, but like, it's uh, yeah. but I'm like kind of like a little piece of glue, sort of like, sort of putting some of these departments together, you know, just to make sure that there's no, there's no problem. There's no errors, you know, basically. Well, I, I feel like even the person who's not doing work that shows up in front of the camera or like contributes to the overall picture still is changing the film in some small way. Yeah. And I, and, and I said this to, to the production team on over my dead body. And I'm glad that it stuck with Marcella. Cause remember she brought it up in San Jose. Mm-hmm. I forgot that I had said that, but it's it's so true. And I and that came from me being an agency producer, feeling like I'm like three steps removed from any of the decisions that actually get made that like go on camera. But even my role in like setting either the tone of like how people are working or um, even some decisions that are made in the edit room, like I'm contributing in some small way. It's like you can't always quantify it and say that's exactly what my contr- contribution is. But you just being there changes things yeah well tone is huge um the tone of the set can make or break a movie you know so if you have anything to do with setting tone that's huge <laughs> i mean you, you see it so much like where like you know if, if the top people in control are uh, don't have good energy or good vibes you know that just seeps down to the rest of the crew but if the top dogs like have a good good energy good vibes positive like you know just working really hard and and like committed to what they're doing then that just cycle that just goes down to the rest of the crew as well so yeah i don't know i'm a big believer in in the right tone and the right energy and in treating everybody with respect and you know uh that's the kind of movies i've been lucky enough to work on for the most part i've worked on some that aren't like that and when they're not like that it sucks uh, <laughs> I mean, do you have anything else to share on this this playback thing, or should we just jump into yeah, sharing? Yeah, I would love to know what other people think. Like, do other people rely on playback? I mean, I feel like, you know, you can't watch every take. Like, you just can't. And, and, I, and I don't think you should, you know? Like, I think there's certain takes that you need to watch playback for to just check, uh, because you know camera moves whatever and like certain performances like if you're only doing two takes of a critical performance like you you better watch the that the one that you like just because you have to be so sure you know and there's like micro expressions and little things that happen that you can miss if you're not really really paying close attention that i've seen in the edit for the movies i've made and so trying to catch those micro expressions or things that might just be a tiny bit off like on set is like it's it would be so huge to to avoid that you know in the edit but uh 
But I don't know. I just, I don't know. I feel like playback's a really, really important tool. And if someone told me that you didn't have playback on a movie or a project I was making, I would be like, <laughs> uh, well, then we can't really make the movie <laughs> if we don't have playback. Well, <laughs> on the same token, people made movies for uh, almost 100 years without playback. So I don't think that it's a, it's a necessary tool. Although it's like every time some new technology comes out, it can be used as a tool. And the, and the thing that jumped out to me when I heard this interview with M. Night and he talked about using playback was like, wow, I never really thought about playback as like another tool in my toolkit. It's like so kind of automatic. It's all, it's always there. And it, it, ever since video came out, it was so easy to play things back. But um, and then I was just kind of thinking like, is there a better way for me to use playback? I, I don't I haven't really answered that for myself, but it was just something that like, I just had, I kind of took for granted playback. Oh yeah, of course there's playback, but how could, what's the best way to use it? I, I guess is the question I'm asking myself right now. Sparingly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sparingly. I don't right. think I could do it on every take. No. I think that would, I would feel lost in what I was doing. I think it just needs but, to be like for the important things. Right. But I mean, yeah, you're right. Like people did, did live without playback for a long time. And I guess, you know, maybe they don't do it anymore, but my, my buddy made a movie in 16 millimeter when, you know, 10 years ago and he didn't have playback at all so it's like you know they would rehearse like 10 times they would get two takes and they would just hope they had got it you know basically <laughs> right that's that's filmmaking right there yeah but uh yeah with the luxuries <laughs> that technology affords you should take advantage of them if you can you know why not right right yeah why not so what do you got to share this week? Um, so I didn't actually get to go to the CineQuest premiere of Remember Me, the first movie I was script supervisor on. I just uh, I couldn't get down there in time for it on Saturday. But uh, apparently it was an amazing screening, and uh, they got a write-up in The Hollywood Reporter, a review. Oh, nice. And apparently, I haven't actually read it yet. I just glanced at it, but it, it seems extremely positive. So that's a huge, a huge tip of the hat there to that movie. And, you know, I just want to say congratulations to Steve, the director and uh, Justin, the DP and, you know, Joel. And of course, Marie, uh, Rita Moreno, uh, like the cast uh, of the movie and the producers like that, that, that was like an extremely fun movie to make, like really, really great experience. And then for them to have such success uh, this early in the release of the movie is just, it's just really, it's really amazing. It just makes the whole movie making experience so much worthwhile when you can like, you know, go on Facebook or online and like see your movie that you had. Well, I mean, it's not my movie, but a movie I worked on, like do well. It's like, ah, it just makes all the effort and all the sacrifice, you know, just feels so much more worth it, you know? Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, congratulations. It sounds like you're making a, a victory speech. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I maybe I have no right to because I was just just the eyeballs <laughs> on the monitor, you know, just whispering in the, the ears of the, the creatives, you know, being like, hey, there's I saw that little logo in the background or, oh, there, there's a reflection <laughs> in that mirror. Or, oh, I saw the boob mic in that shot. But like, you know, I mean, I don't know. I feel like. That, that that helps in some way, a small way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Well, let's let's definitely include that article in our show notes. Absolutely, absolutely. What about you? Do you have anything to share? Yeah, we have a new review on iTunes. Oh my god! Yeah, Hooray. by <laughs> by Beats for Days. Beats for Days. Sweet. <laughs> uh, great podcast. If you have any interest in filmmaking, please listen. Five stars. And here's what he has to say. I recently decided to get back into filmmaking and after attending an SF-based film event where I was told to listen to Making Movies is Hard, I was a little weary because everyone is hawking a podcast these days. 
but after being out of the film game for 10 years, I figured this would help me catch up. Needless to say, I've listened to all the episodes in order, and they should be required listening for all film students or anyone thinking about making a film a career. <laughs> wow. Oh Timothy God. and Ulrich are the original odd couple and pretty much polar opposite views on most things, yet they still get along great. I think what I like the best about the podcast is the honesty. No matter how soul-crushing the topic, these guys objectively analyze all the aspects of independent filmmaking, including their chances of making it in Hollywood. No punches are pulled. No happy endings here, folks. But it makes for a great podcast, and it keeps me coming back every week. Plus, you learn a lot about working in commercial filmmaking, what it's like to run a small crew, how to get that cinematic look, etc. You want to know the real re reality of making independent films, which is 95% of us, listen to this podcast. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's an awesome that's a, one. the best review ever. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, Beats for Days. Yeah. Be thanks, Beats for Days. Oh, my God. Wow. Uh, I wonder what SF-based uh, film event he went to. I know. I want to know that, too. Was it one that we were at, or was it one... I don't know. <laughs> I, I have to I know. know. I have to know. <laughs> the mystery. Yeah. Well, we may never find well, out. Beats for Days, if they're listening, you can uh, just tweet at us and let us know where you heard about the podcast. Um, and thanks again for the wonderful review. That touches our yeah. hearts deeply. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um. Wow. Man, that's that's really great because, like, you know, nice to hear that people are still listening. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, we have a little bit of a sense for how many episodes are getting downloaded every week, but you still don't know how many of those episodes are being listened to. Yeah. People could just have it subscribed on their phone and then it just downloads automatically and then they're like, ah, oh, another episode of these guys. Making movies is hard. Mm, no yeah. thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but your wish came true. There's a bunch of comments on last week's episode oh, sweet. on the website. Oh. I think like four people now have commented. So go on there and fulfill your duties and respond to them. Oh, yeah. God, I'm terrible. I haven't even checked yeah. the website in a week or two. So You had this plea, like, everyone, please, comment, let's, let's comment. get the conversation going. And then Ulrich just disappears. <laughs> hey, man, I'm, I'm busy, man. I'll, I'll come back, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's head out. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you like the show, tell your friends about us. That's probably the best thing you could do. Share, Spread the word. Or if you would rather, just leave a review on iTunes. You can check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can subscribe to the show notes or share your thoughts on this episode or any other episode. Or send us an email at podcast at makingmoviesishard.com, and we'll read it on the show. Uh, thanks, Ulrich. That was a good one. Yeah. And sorry that I had, I'm had. i having another emotional crisis. Hey, man. I know Alex Kellerman's going to be upset because he thought that we had switched places. But <laughs> hey, Alex, I'm back. <laughs> yeah, um, man. I, I just hope that we could, I could help and, you know, work you through it or whatever, talk you through it a little bit. I mean, it's a, it's a tough thing, but I mean, I know you're going to bounce back. You just, I think you just need to go oh, out yeah. and make a movie, man. That's what I think. Just go out, get behind yeah. the camera, make something, do a Duplass style short, just run out and do it. Figure it out. Uh, all right. Well, thanks very much everybody. And, uh, you know, have a great week. Have a great week. Bye. <laughs>